When I graduated from high school just over a year ago, I took one look at myself and said, you are so naive. I mean, the closest that I've ever been to being in a fight was some spirited stage combat that I did for Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> uh, and as far as drinking goes, my parents did not discourage me from drinking, but actually encouraged me to practice drinking beer so that I could do it without making a face, so that I'd be ready for college. <laughs> so when I graduate from high school, I'm like, shit, I have to get out in the world and grow up a little bit before I go to school. So I arranged this gap year. This is something that's, that's kind of gaining popularity a little bit in the US. Um, a lot of people in England do it, but I took a year off and I planned all these activities and internships and jobs that I thought could improve me in different ways, you know? Um, so I, I had it all planned out. Like I've never been super athletic, never played team sports, but I thought, you know, I, I want to improve my biceps. So I signed up for um, trail work in Alaska on a glacier. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, but I thought, you know, I'm pretty smart, and maybe I, I'm kind of interested in politics. Maybe I could, I could go into politics. So after that, I lined myself up to do an internship in the U.S. Senate with our Senator Jeff Merkley. And finally, I wanted to get out in the world a little bit, and I wanted to see more of the world and, be, and, and go to another country. So I arranged for my, for my third chapter of the gap year to be doing volunteer work in Siem Reap, Cambodia. Somewhere I've never been, um, gonna have a new, a new experience. But, um, but in the end, the part of this whole gap year that, that impacted me the most was not any of those things. And it was something that I did not plan at all. Um, but to tell you about that, I first have to fill you in a little bit about my grandpa, Dan Gallagher. Uh, my grandpa was a big man. Uh, as a kid, he lived with his family in, uh, in the back room of their grocery store in the ghetto in LA. And because he was one of the few white kids in the neighborhood, his friends used to call him the little white angel. But he was never little. He was a big guy. For most of his life, he weighed about 300 pounds. Um, and that was something with, uh, that he struggled with. He lost uh, weight at the end of his life because he knew it was important to his health. Um, but he was a big guy. And he was also, um, he also had a big mind. This is a guy who came downstairs every day and sat down at this awesome retro 1970s round kitchen table and took the LA Times crossword puzzle and did it in one go in black pen. Uh, you know, no, no doubts, right? No looking back. And, and that's really, that's, that's a emblematic of, of his style that, you know, he, he was really logical, he made decisions rationally, and once he knew what he was gonna do, he would do it in pen. Um, he also loved to read. He would read about politics and history. Um, he would blow me out of the water. I'd be like, can you help me you know, practice for this history test? And he would ask questions. No idea. Um, and, uh, and he would read about chemistry. He was a chemical engineer. Um, and when he was done with all that reading, he also found the time to obliterate me at Scrabble. <laughs> so about five years ago, um, when my grandma Florine died, we tried to talk my grandpa Dan into moving up here to Portland where we live. He lives in Fullerton, California, which is near LA. And we said, you know, Dan, you should come on up. It'll be a better situation. You'll be close to us. We'll be able to take care of you. Everyone will be more at ease. Um, it's a good idea. But he didn't want to do it. He said no. Um, you know, he had his friends. He had his life in Fullerton that he wanted to stick with. And one part of that was that he was a founding member of his community synagogue about a few years before. And he would always go every Friday night, and they were expecting him. Um, and also, he loved to drive around in his big black Cadillac. It had been a dream of his for, for most of his life to get this Cadillac, and he finally, he finally had it, 
Um, and he said, I'm okay, I can still drive around. You know, as long as I have that, I'll be all right. So fast forward, here I am. I've gone to Alaska, survived, gone to DC, survived. I'm in Cambodia, I'm doing my volunteer work. I'm feeling great about myself. Just, this is awesome. I'm, I'm just maturing so much. <laughs> and, and I get this phone call um, from my Aunt Debbie, uh, who's here right now. Um, I get this phone call and immediately know something's very wrong. Um, she's tearful, sounds very upset, and she says, uh, your grandpa Dan fell down and broke his neck. Oh shit, that's exactly what I said. Um, it's like, you know, what do you say back to that? I didn't know what to say. I had all these emotions. All these thoughts started going through my head really quick. What's going to happen to my grandpa? And, and what's going to happen to me, all my plans and my family? And just a lot of uncertainty. And I learned that, that what had happened over, the, over the, the, the conversation, I learned that what had happened, he'd fallen down and he'd broken his neck, but ironically what had actually saved him from just his neck just snapping was that his arthritis, was that how calcified his neck was, which I think honestly is the only time arthritis has ever done anything good for anyone in my family. Um, but certainly not complaining, so he wasn't dead. And he wasn't paralyzed, he wasn't quadriplegic, which really, um, incredible, incredible. That, that was very against the odds. He was still, still alive and he still wasn't paralyzed, but there was a big risk that, that either of those things could happen at any moment. So he had to go and have an emergency surgery where his neck would be stabilized with metal plates and metal screws. And the idea was to keep his neck as stable as possible and stop it from moving to reduce the risk of, of, of him becoming paralyzed or just dying. And we all knew, you know, we, we, we knew that he had to have the surgery because if he didn't, you know, he, he was gonna go downhill really fast. We also knew that it, during the surgery, things, in this kind of surgery, you have to do it fast and, 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 and things go wrong all the time. And we knew that could happen. So he goes into emergency surgery. I get on a plane and I fly back into LA and it's like, oh my God, the culture shock. Like I was, I had been living in Seam Reef 10 minutes by bicycle from these majestic 4,000 year old stone temples where they like film, where they film Tomb Raider, um, Angkor Wat and they're like, uh, you know, elephants walking around and monks in orange robes everywhere. And now it's just like Walmart everywhere. <laughs> like, uh, you know, just I feel like I'm being assaulted by freeways and strip malls taking over the whole world. Um, and it, it, it does not feel good at all. Added to the stress of what's going to happen to my grandpa. So my family and I all gather. My Aunt Debbie, my parents, my sister, and me. And we, and we, we find out what happened with the surgery. And against all odds, once again, he lives and he's not paralyzed. But something did go wrong during the surgery. And he had some nerve damage in his neck, which rendered him incapable of swallowing any food or water. Oh shit, again. Um, and so this put him in the position of having to make a choice. And his first option was to continue living with the, with the assistance of aides, of attendants who would take care of him and they would feed him through a tube and clean up after him and, and do everything for him and you know, move him around and, and clean him and, uh, and he wouldn't be able to do anything for himself and he wouldn't be able to walk and he certainly would not be able to drive. Um, okay, that's option one. Option two is that he would come home to his house and go on hospice. And, and just live out the rest of his life for as long as he can live without eating or drinking, and basically come home to die. And we all knew, I knew, we all knew, 
that once he made this decision, he was going to make it in pen. And there was going to be no going back. So this was the moment when we were all thinking, what's he going to do? But also, like, what would I do? What would you do? Um, it's really hard to know. I, I would think for me, um, I would want to live. I'd want to live as long as possible. Given my age, I'm 19. Um, I'd want to give it the best shot I had. Um, but that's not what he chose. Uh, he chose to come home. So he came home, and we came home with him, my family. And I became part of a care team that was taking care of him 24-7. Uh, so in the morning, I would get up, we'd come downstairs, where his bed was in the living room, and help shave him, and bathe him, and change his shirt, and change his sheets if necessary, and uh, talk to him and see how, he was, see how he was doing, and give him pain meds. Um, and he had to take some, some medicine through a mask that was a gas as well. Um, and then we would get him ready for the visitors. And Lord, did they come. You know, I was so surprised. I thought this was, he's such an introverted man that I was so surprised 80 people showed up in four days to visit, to visit him and say goodbye to him. Um, and I was totally blown away. Like, um, people from his, his, his childhood. There was a guy that could call him Danny Boy. The guy's 85. <laughs> and, 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 and so I was learning stuff about him. I learned that in college he was in this, uh, this singles group, like this group of friends that uh, would kind of go out and do outings together, like maybe looking for a date. And that's how he met his wife. Um, and, and, I, and so there were also some people. He was a chemical engineer. He worked with a team of people to design the chemical coating that protected the paint on the Golden Gate Bridge. Some of those guys were there. So just all these people from different parts of his life, the people from his temple, and even his weight loss counselor <laughs> came. And this was, this was amazing to me, right? She was supposed to be counseling him. But when I said, you know, she said I had to come say goodbye to Dan because he was such a good friend to me. And I said, tell me about that. And she said he was such a good listener. That's so true. Like, people would come up to him. I mean, you can't be on, more on your deathbed than he was. Literally laying there, going to die, and people would pour out their hearts to him or say their prepared statement or just be at a loss for words and just stand there. And he would ask them, how are you? How's your mom? How's your knee? Right? How's your, how's your, your, your little daughter? Right? He would think about other people, which is amazing to me at that, that moment. And so, you know, you might think, like, oh, this is a really stressful situation. One of my loved ones is about to die. You know, this is, this is bad. But when I, was, when I was part of this team with my family doing this, I felt really good. And I felt like I mattered more than any, I mean, anything else I'd done before this. You know, I'd done a lot of projects that I thought I'd be important for. But this, I really had to be there. If I hadn't been there, it couldn't have happened. And so I really felt like I was important and, and I mattered. And I also felt like it was awesome to be part of this team working together with my family. Um, that doesn't happen very often because, you know, usually we, we have dinner together, right? But we're, we're kind of say, how's your day? But really, we're all thinking our own thoughts. And after dinner, we all go do our own thing. But for this, get up in the morning and we're, we're on. We're together. We're like, we're really listening to each other. We're really looking at each other. Like, what do you need? How are we going to get this stuff done today? Um, and it was this great feeling of being part of a team being part of a team with my family. And for the first couple days that I was there, my grandpa Dan, he put on such a brave struggle. And it really, honestly, to me, did not feel that different from just visiting him. You know, at first, when I, I hadn't been there to see him at first when he was in really bad shape. And now it, it seemed to me like, you know, he had friends visiting and, and everything was going well. But of course, when you don't eat and drink, that can only last so long. And, uh, and so eventually we had to tell the visitors to stop coming. And then one day we, on, a, on probably the fifth or sixth day, we, we realized that 
this was probably going to be his last day of being able to speak. So we had the rabbi come over, the rabbi from this, this temple that he, he founded, and the same rabbi that helped bat mitzvah, my, my mom and my aunt, and we had a couple other close friends over, and we all stood in a circle around his bed and held hands with him and all of us together, and we said the Shema, which is, uh, which is the prayer in Hebrew that you say in a time of need, or if, you, if you're going to die, or in daily prayer service, which is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And we all said it. And that was, that was pretty much the last thing we said. And, uh, and over the next couple of days, we continued to take care of him, and I continued to talk to him and, and, and whisper into his ear, and he would move his eyebrow a little bit, or he would move his foot, so I thought he could probably hear me or at least know that I was present. Um, but, you know, eventually he, he did die. And then, at that moment, that was when I thought, okay, now I'm really going to feel bad. Now, now I'm going to feel like, oh, this is, now he, now he died. All this was for nothing, like, so bad, and, and I should have all these bad feelings. But once again, to my surprise, I still felt good. And I still felt like, like I was doing something good. And I had to wrestle with that. Is it okay for me to feel this way right now? Right? Like, should I be feeling this way? Can I be feeling this way? And finally, it took a long time, but I finally realized why it was that I had all these good feelings. Because my grandpa didn't come home to die. He came home to live for one week. And I'm just very glad that I was able to be a part of that. Mm -hmm.